Welcome to Literary Fiction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. Um, I'm pretty good, actually. It's really nice to be able to say that. I'm really enjoying working on, on the book I'm writing, and I'm at that stage where I just feel full of optimism about it. You know, that classic feeling at the start of a new project where it's so precious because you know it will always end up somewhere very different when you get to the other end. But at the beginning, it just feels full of exciting possibility. So I'm I'm really trying to treasure these moments of upbeat energy while I have them. And I think also, if I'm being completely honest, it's it's helped by the fact that all being well, I'm going away on Saturday for my summer holiday. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> How about you? How are you? Um, I'm so happy that you are good. Uh, <laughs> that's what I am. I'm I'm very busy and very yeah. tired. Um, but all of a sudden things are like half back to normal with work. And I'm trying to readjust and it's actually really overwhelming. Not that I wish we were back in the pandemic, but it just feels like this odd in-between time. And I'm very overwhelmed. But trying to remember those long, very samey days of the pandemic and feel grateful that I can go into London and I can see my friends and, you know, I have a much fuller life now. And that is a good thing. Also, be gentle with yourself because you're also jet lagged, you know? I am also jet lagged, which always makes me crazy. And I always forget. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, why do I feel bad? Yeah, it's powerful. It's It's a powerful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a slave to uh, my circadian rhythms, it seems. (laughs) Anyway, on to the show. Today, we're really excited to welcome the thinker and writer Maggie Nelson, whose latest book, On Freedom, attempts to reclaim the meaning of freedom from today's political debates, exploring this idea in four essays about art, sex, drugs, and climate. For Maggie, you can't talk about freedom without talking about constraint. And indeed, the subtitle of On Freedom is Four Songs of Care and Constraint. So today we're going to take that as our larger theme. Does a certain amount of constraint in parameters or in the means of conception produce better art? I might ask Octavia that question. In what ways (laughs) has literature been constrained? And what are our favorite books that feature constraint? We will be asking each other these questions. But before we get started, Octavia, would you like to tell our listeners a little more about Maggie? I sure would. Maggie Nelson is the author of several books of poetry and prose, including the New York Times bestseller and National Book Critics Circle Award winner, The Argonauts, often mentioned on the show, and most recently in the UK, Bluets. She teaches at University of Southern California and lives in Los Angeles. Also, quick reminder that we are on Patreon if you want to support the work that we do and get extra content. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as a chance to suggest topics for us and our undying and unending gratitude. Yes, and that is worth more than any extra content, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I'm trying to sell here. Anyway, for now, (laughs) stay tuned for our interview with Maggie, a more general discussion of constraint in literature, and finally, our usual book recommendations. So let us strap you in, oh girl, for the next hour of literary friction. You need a whip to crack when you say that, actually. Maybe I'll get one. (laughs) 
Maggie Nelson, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. My pleasure. So we've asked you to start by reading your afterword from On Freedom. Would you mind doing that for us? I am ready to do that. All right. So this is the afterword, and uh, it comes after a lot of other words, which none of you are privy to at present, but I, I think it stands alone okay. So it goes like this. In his 1844 essay, Experience, Emerson wrote, We wake and find ourselves on a stair. There are stairs below us, which we seem to have ascended. There are stairs above us, many a one which go upward and out of sight. Such in-betweenness may be our chronic state, but it has felt to me, as promised, definitively keener at midlife, where I'm currently perched, and where Emerson was perched when he wrote Experience. He'd also just lost his five-year-old son, Wally. The sense of being trapped on a stair, in time, in midlife, in our bodies, in pain, in history, in grief, Able to see the import of our lives and our times only through a glass darkly is familiar enough. Certainly it has had some strong advocates. But it is not the only interpretation of our situation or the only tense in which we traffic. As Italian philosopher Rosie Bredotti, among others, has reminded us, there is also the future interior, a tense notable for its conjuring of a future before the future, a little pocket in time, a fold or a hatch from which it makes sense to say, as Bredotti does, you will have changed, they will have fought for justice, or we will have been free. Bredotti calls such assertions nomadic remembering. Nomadic remembering, what could it mean? From what place or time or speaker do such assertions derive? What kind of temporal abundance allows us to remember what has not yet been? Does we will have been free move me because it offers a consolation prize, slave morality style, or because I sense in it an inescapable truth? Does it emanate from a speaker who hopes, who in fact knows, that utterances made in the present can shape the past and future? Is it an assurance that arises from who knows where, the afterlife, akin to Moten and Harney's fugitive refrain, if they ask you, tell them we were flying? Were we? Are we now? A few years prior to experience, Emerson wrote in The American Scholar, this time, like all times, is a very good one, if we but know what to do with it. This inspiring and sometimes galling proposition has provided me with no small measure of provocation and sustenance since I first encountered it over two decades ago, when it was a topic of discussion during my orals exam in graduate school. My exam took place a few weeks after 9-11, a time during which our building, which was across the street from the Empire State Building, was being repeatedly evacuated due to anthrax scares and bomb threats. It's hard to conjure now how bad that time felt, especially as the bad feelings were soon subsumed by different bad feelings about the wars on Afghanistan and Iraq, and now that New York City has undergone a fresh wave of collected suffering and death from covid but I remember it felt very bad. How is this time a very good one? My committee and I wondered aloud in our gray carpeted seminar room, each of us eyeing little mounds of chalk dust we worried might be anthrax. What would it mean to know what to do with it? After my exam, we debated the safest modes of transit home. Some professors said they hadn't been near the subway since so many had been buried alive in the tunnels. Others, haunted by the images of people covered in ash and blood being chased down the street by a meteor of debris, insisted the train was safer. I was in the former camp, and thus embarked post-exam on the long walk home to Brooklyn. 
No matter what is going on in the world, you should still mark the occasion by buying yourself something nice like a fountain pen, one professor counseled, a suggestion that felt as ludicrous as it was kind. I have since dispensed similar advice. I felt sick to my stomach that day, as I did for months after 9-11. I'd never before felt, and I hope never to feel again, what material proximity to thousands of recently murdered people feels like, what it smells like. As I took the long walk home, I turned Emerson's axiom over and over in my head. Its superficial blitheness or coldness reminded me of certain Buddhist teachings, such as the one about this moment being the perfect teacher, a teaching that can really piss people off. This cancer, this car accident, this separation from my child, this police shooting, this unjust war, this sixth extinction, this pandemic, that we don't get to exempt certain experiences from these propositions is, however, integral to their challenge, as is the fact that something can be a perfect teacher while also ending in our death. One definition, alas, of life itself. Think we must. We must think. As we think. We might remember that it matters not only with whom and what we choose to think. It also matters what spirit we choose to think with. As the feminist team of economic geographers Gibson Graham puts it, the spirit of our thinking is a matter for ethical decision, as is the choice of techniques and practices of thinking. No doubt this ethical decision is complicated by the fact that, as Gibson Graham also says, all thinking is conditioned by feeling. If our feelings shape our thinking, and we don't exactly choose our feelings, how on earth can we choose the spirit of our thought? There are a thousand ways in which the spirit of my thought feels determined, sometimes overdetermined, by my demographics, my historical moment, my nature, my nurture, the technological means by which I produce and distribute it, the company I keep, and the well-worn grooves of my mind. These proclivities are never entirely within one's control, and woe to she who believes otherwise. Yet the fact that a great deal of how we think and feel is spontaneous, habitual, and tied to forces larger than ourselves, be they our traditions, our times, or our temperament, is no reason to presume it fixed. Awakening to the choices we have in such matters is a practice of freedom, and it is one worth our time. Thinking aloud with others, as I've tried to do here, is one such practice. It is an ongoing and even dialectical process in that it involves allowing oneself to be interpenetrated and transformed while retaining the capacity to differentiate and assert. It does not require that we agree. It requires that we not abandon one another. Using discursive language in service of such a goal is tricky insofar as discursive language monologues pretends to know. But thinking aloud is distinct from mere argument, bossiness, or persuasion. It involves examining the hold that certain ideas have on us, as individuals, a culture, a subculture, even a species, and allowing for ventilation, adaptation, and release, so that we don't become unwittingly shackled to them, as can happen with freedom itself. As for the final big night of liberation, I am still not holding my breath. In fact, my patient labors in the realms of art, sex, drugs, and climate, and there could have been more, but limitation begets fruition have strengthened my respect for the complex ongoing practices of freedom, care, and constraint, as well as for the challenges of staying with the trouble. 
At the same time, as I bring this project to its close, I can literally hear outside the sound of the uprisings that have been filling the streets all summer, their insubordinate conviviality flooding me with hope and gratitude throughout an otherwise heartbreaking and frightening time. The eruption of cacophonous public assembly in service of freedom and care alike in the midst of such an intensely isolating period, that is, life under stay-at-home orders wherein our capacity to touch has been radically constrained, has served as a reminder of the irrepressible power of liberatory spirit, as well as of that spirit's temporal abundance, how it links to past struggles, shapeshifts to meet the present, and has the capacity to transmogrify the future. As commentators stay busy prognosticating how close we are to falling off one cliff or another, or charting the odds as to whether this moment will serve, or rather whether we will make it serve, as a portal to the changes we badly want and need, whether it is, in fact, a good time that we know what to do with, the value of divesting from the horse race of hope and fear has never felt to me so clear. For even if this moment does not deliver everything we want, and what moment ever has, or even if things get radically worse from here. It's not as if the portal then shuts and we're reconfined to the matrix, grimly awaiting a deuce ex machina to gift us another chance. We will have to keep on. We will have kept on. With our love, study, and struggle, the trinity revered by Robin Kelly, in which each element is inseparable from the others, and each stands ready to buoy us if and when the others falter. As far as obtaining freedom in two or three seconds and releasing all the sorrow and regret about the past and all the uncertainty and fear about the future, as Tichnut Ha had it, I can't say that's yet happened for me. In fact, one of this book's sleeper surprises was that focusing on freedom brought me into a full-throttle reckoning with anxiety, one of freedom's most formidable adversaries. Perhaps this should not have been a surprise. One of the lessons of interdependence is that you can't get to know anything without getting to know its siblings or surroundings. I would not be the first thinker or human to discover the distressing, if potentially fertile, kinship between freedom and anxiety, even if I had to learn it anew for myself. But I can say that, through repeated, often painful excursions, I have learned which habits of mine lead to more panic, to more curdled and constricted heart the dread of bad scenes or surprises, the ferocious desire to ward off pain, illness, or death, attempts to control that which dwarfs one's ability to do so, and which ones lead to vastness, empty space, blue sky, whatever you want to call it, the silence and nothingness at the end of writing and everything else. I didn't, and I still don't know, what opening onto that vastness would feel like. Sometimes I feel sure I won't know until I die. But I am not going for a freedom drive that's primarily a death drive. All that comes soon enough. Until then, I want to be in, all in, all heart, no escape. Thank you, Maggie. It was really wonderful to hear you read that. It's a part of the book where I think your voice feels especially strong, you know, the authorial voice. So it was, it was fantastic. And I love what you say about freedom being a practice and I think that's something that really comes through across the whole book and through all of the the different songs and the different things that you discuss. And following on from that, what made you arrive as at freedom as the overarching idea that you were going to explore in this book because you say at one point that you thought maybe you would write about care. It seems like maybe you were 
you had a lot of ideas, but you were searching for something to, to unite them. Yeah. I mean, my felt experience was actually kind of the opposite in that freedom idea was definitely first and there was no search to unite them. It was definitely like I began the project with a kind of harvesting or collecting of different, and not, not, not of different theorizing about freedom, you know, not kind of like, I mean, I did read like this book, Eric Foner's book, The Story of American Freedom and some other kind of primers like that, you know, about like um, politics or cultural senses in which the word has traveled. But I think I was more interested in, uh, because I'm not, for better or for worse, a very historical thinker. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm more of a kind of a magpie, like kind of a collector and a kind of a synchronic thinker. I think that I, that I was interested in when there's a word often it's being used to signify kind of radically different things to different people that often begins to interest me. So I begin to more collect, I don't know how to explain it, just kind of like, just kind of looking for how the word was operating in different places and then trying to kind of place them by each other and think about it. And I think because of the word's relationship to notions of autonomy and because of the idea that a lot of, especially patriarchal or misogynistic like you know millennia where ideas of political autonomy or other kinds of freedom have been very explicitly placed um, in opposition to the kind of manacles of care and obligation that would be performed by women or slaves i think i began to become just very kind of theoretically interested that if we're moving into an age where we don't want freedom, we don't want to be um, governed by or yearning after a notion of freedom that is opposed to care and obligation, what can or would that look like? What would it, how would we bear it, basically? <laughs> and then, so in some ways, that's the trouble that the book tries to stay with, rotated around through four realms in which I think that issue is quite alive. Yeah, well, there's, it keeps coming back to the fact that the word freedom is hard to define precisely because it can mean such different things to different people. And obviously, like the right wing's version of freedom simply can't coexist with the left wing's version of freedom because they are in direct opposition to one another a lot of the time, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I will say that I started off at the beginning of this project was that, you know, I have a lot of, not to brag, but I do feel proud of having a lot of smart friends, and I'm sure you guys do too. And I <laughs> I put together kind of like a little questionnaire, like a freedom questionnaire that I sent them. You know, a lot of these people are people like theorists and writers and or spiritual thinkers who actually appear in the book, but I don't, I don't reproduce their questionnaires, but that they... Um, you know, but one thing I thought was really interesting about it was it's it's true what you say about the right wing and left wing experiences of freedom, like as they're kind of carved out and played out, you know, at opposing protests and, you know, on Twitter or whatever are, are in opposition. But what I noticed in my freedom questionnaire of all my of these people whom whom I would all call, for lack of a better term, you know, left wing people, there was a lot of escape and autonomy and wanting to shred uh, the ties that bind, you know, in those responses about my questions that were like, when do you feel most free? And I thought that was really interesting. And it made me pause a little bit and think that the book was also going to have to be about, I mean, this was partly why it was like kind of turning away from a, a political stage was that I felt like in these responses I received that I was getting a real portrait of the kind of marbled difficulty of trying to kind of seek freedom 
away from things that felt like unfreedom, but knowing that our lives are also kind of given meaning by the relations and sometimes the obligations that shape those lives and so how we live with them. And I feel like that was more interesting to write about than kind of warring notions of individual liberty versus collective liberation. That's interesting in its way, but I feel like it's just a little dead end in its um, in, in how much we've heard about it. And this was even before, I felt exhausted by that conversation even before the pandemic, you know, when it's become you know, really loud once again. But that's been a loud clash for hundreds of years. You know, the pandemic is just another, the country I'm in and the country you guys are in have been kind of um, seedbeds for that kind of (laughs) individual liberty, uh, you know, pitted against the collective good for a long time. So I just wasn't, I just didn't really have much to say about that per se. Yeah, that makes sense. I love that you did a survey. I think that's great. Have you done that before with other books? No, not in, not in any particular way. I was like a little stuck because like I knew I knew what I wanted to write about, but I was th- this thing. It's too you know esoteric to get into uh, maybe, but um, but this kind of dust up between James Baldwin and Hannah Arendt mid century was super interesting to me. And I felt as though this conversation about political freedom and spiritual freedom that they were having, um, particularly as it was being kind of refracted after the experience of Iran in World War II through the civil rights movement in the United States and Baldwin's relationship to that, I felt like that was just really, really interesting. And so that line from the introduction where I quote Baldwin saying, It can be objected that I am speaking of political freedom in spiritual terms, but the political institutions of any nation are always menaced and ultimately controlled by the spiritual state of that nation. And then I begin to ask, you know, what does it mean, like, to be menaced and controlled by the spiritual state of a nation, you know, but I begin to be, I mean, the book is not, I don't use language of the spiritual the way Baldwin does, but I did begin, and Arendt is wholly dismissive as our most political philosophers of the idea of the spiritual state of a nation. But I did wonder how I could grapple with that. And I was confused. So I, my survey to my friends was also like how they understood that line, how they understood political and spiritual freedom points in their life when they felt most free or unfree, things like that. I didn't like drag it out of them, but some of them gave it to me anyway. But I was interested in bodily experiences, you know, like how it feels, like the feeling, how you know how you locate within yourself feeling free and does it always feel good? You know, so those were the kind of questions that I needed help with just to start. Yeah. And it's the subtitle is Four Songs of Care and Constraint. And I I think the parts that spoke to me the most immediately maybe were your analysis of caring and its many different forms. And to me, they felt very embodied, actually very bodily, especially when you write about towards the end of the book, you uh, with your son And then earlier on, you have this really, I found it incredibly enriching discussion about the way that caring, you write, caring and coercion often exist in a knot with their extrication never simple. It rang so true to me. I recently cared for my father as he expired, basically. And I'm watching a lot of friends having children now, and I see the parallels, right? And I wanted to hear you talk a bit more about that and what you describe as the socialization of the maternal, because I thought this was such an important concept and I don't think it's given enough airtime. 
you know, like the art world that I'm kind of associated with just seemed like the word care was the new hot word, you know, and every invitation I seem to get, and I've actually keynoted two conferences devoted to care. And there's obviously a lot of politics of care and all of it makes sense because, you know, we're living in like, you know, this excruciatingly uncaring you know, world that doesn't even care about its own perseverance, you know, in existence vis-a-vis the climate. So, I mean, it's like all of it made sense to me, but I think because I was a parent of a young child and like you had just helped to, you know, elder parents of my partner through to their expiration, as you say, and other things. And because I knew how just, um, which is wholly different than what, you know, Sidia Hartman's talking about um, in a history of black women being conscripted into care, and the wholly different as it is, it did just all of it really, I, w- I was just very alert to like, this word needs a lot more attention, you know, like this just word needs a lot more attention because people have been conscripted into care and there is this element of coercion. A lot of people do, like I say, you know, just kind of on like the most mundane level have to negotiate, especially now that we're not white men gone into the world with the women and slaves at home to where we get to be artists and, you know, political subjects. Like since we are enmeshed in all these relations, the, the fight to get to the art, to the studio and stand there, as Amy Selman says, with your paintbrush in your hand, putting off the cares and obligations long enough to try and make a good oil painting also felt to me very real and very important to spend some time with. And to be clear, like, I believe in caring for other people, you know, like, that's not the point. The point is what you say, which is that caring and coercion often exist in a knot, and that is underestimates the people engaged in it to not understand that they have urges and needs vis-a-vis being cared for and autonomy as well. So the other word in your subtitle is constraint. I was interested in in why you chose that to be the other word, and also just whether you think that the idea of freedom always needs to be set against the idea of constraint or or some kind of constraint. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's probably in the title because it starts with a C <laughs> and so does care. I mean, I'm just saying like in terms of like why it's not, I mean, you know, restraint is also an interesting word, you know, constraint usually means someone's doing it to you. Restraint has more of a connotation of like you holding yourself back. I think both constraint and restraint are, are alive in the book. But I do think that I was, you know, really moved by this Brian Masumi. I think it actually was an interview that I quote. When he says freedom always arises from constraint. Exactly. Creative conversion of it, not some utopian escape from it. Exactly. So I feel like freedom is not about breaking or escaping constraints. It's about flipping them over into degrees of freedom. You can't really escape the constraints. No body can escape gravity. Freedom always arises from constraint. It's a creative conversion of it, not some utopian escape from it. Well, obviously, since your listeners are, you know, you guys have already heard me read the afterword, you can see me kind of activating a lot of words in that quote. But I found that very moving. I think I found it moving because right before that in this chapter, which is the drug chapter, I've been talking about this um, Judith Butler quote about a question of how to work the trap that one is inevitably in. And I think when I was growing up, like in graduate school, and when I was kind of doing my Foucault time, that idea of being um, working the trap that one is inevitably in. I mean, I remember writing down that maybe that even that exact same phrase from a Spivak lecture that I was at. And like, I thought about that a lot. But for some reason, when I read the Masumi quote about um, not escaping the constraints, but flipping them over into degrees of freedom, I felt um, 
like it was a new take on this working the trap. It wasn't just working the trap as if you were just kind of jerking off your, your manacles or something. You know what I mean? Like it just had a different, I think that the image of flipping them, like I just kind of saw switches or I saw like um, rerouting. Like I, I think I, I just saw um, this idea of creative conversion of it also was moving to me because in the climate chapter, there's a point when I'm talking about this Timothy Mitchell book about democracy and carbon. And I'm talking about the, you know, I'm quoting him where he's talking about the ways in which um, coming up with new forms of energy, you know, to power our lives is and will be a way of, let me see how he puts it because he puts it better than I do. But he says, the building of solutions to future energy needs is also the building of new forms of collective life. I think that that's a much more, hopeful idea about creative conversion than just this idea of like quitting fossil fuels or something abstaining you know that kind of like white knuckling beyond this idea of like being able to recognize that something that used to be a form of freedom like maybe fossil fuel use has changed it isn't that anymore and that we have to keep being foxy you know (laughs) and and engaging in creative conversion and flipping constraints in order to restructure our collective life and it's possible listening to you there i mean it relates a lot to some of the the points you make about sobriety in your chapter about drugs and drug literature and how a lot of things that we can become addicted to they begin in in a sense of freedom and they begin in a sense of pleasure and joy and if you become addicted they end up as a constraint of a terrible yeah. kind and then yeah. you bring sobriety in as a kind of counterbalance of a different form of freedom, which one could describe as a constrained freedom, I suppose, but it's exactly what you're saying, the way of flipping the narrative and opening new doors. I thought that was was really great. I wondered what drew you to wanting to write about drug literature, because that chapter partly is kind of like a literature review in a way. Yeah, it um, is, right? Yeah, and like, yeah. I'd love to hear what why you did it that way. In the public discourse about drugs, especially about addiction, it's all valenced really negatively. And everything is kind of like, how do we stop the opioid crisis? How do we spare people this agony and pain? How can we do harm reduction? How can we, you know, all these different things. And the story is is very codified as like, and in literature, there's a lot more wildness and space of kind of I, I wouldn't just say like jauntiness because sometimes like uh, sometimes it can be very like in the like being killed and after Claude books I'm talking about sometimes it can be super abject it's abject in a different way than just a kind of story where you know there's like sad people with track marks or like you know methed out teeth that like you're supposed to feel sorry for like it's just like a whole different store of knowledge in my experience and you know, recovery and with people is that, that, that there, there, there is, there, there are just hugely motley stories to tell and, and many affects that can be explored along the way. And so I wanted to pick books that I thought could um, be a part of that exploration. I want to ask you about the first essay or chapter, I don't know, song, I guess is <laughs> what you call them in the books, about art. Song seems a little, like... I mean, it's kind of a joke, which no one really seems to have gotten, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, everyone's like, she thinks these are songs? Like, they're so clunky. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's like the joke is like, like you know, what's the furthest reach of a kind of scholarly or thinking writing that could still 
be imagined as a kind of lyric or a symphony. You know, anyway, that was my that was my provocation. But you know, I don't actually think that they're. You know, I've written lyric poetry. I know that this is not that. But anyway, yes. <laughs> in case anyone doesn't think I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that people like kind of refuse to believe that you could make a joke. Um, and maybe, maybe it's your, maybe it's your reputation as a writer. I mean, right. yeah. It's I mean, it's not like a total joke. It's just not like a total, um, <laughs> like I'm very, I work in so many genres. I'm really aware of how they sound, you know, and I wanted to write this book in a precisely the idiom that it's written. It's not that like I could have, it's not like, it's not cause I can't write in any other way. You know, it is the book I wanted to write. Yeah, because it, it is very different from The Argonauts, which is is your last book and the one that I think a lot of readers who might not have encountered your work before first encountered. And I think some of them might be surprised by this right? because this feels much more like straight criticism. Well, than... they just don't know all my work. I mean, because it's like you could think, oh, she's a true crime writer because you read The Red Parts or yeah. something. Or you could think, oh, she's a poet. If you read books of poetry or you could think, oh, she's... You know, I have two other books of art criticism. So it just, you know, which is fine. It doesn't matter. It's just kind of, I mean, that that always happens when a certain book gets more read, but it doesn't. It doesn't, it that doesn't, doesn't bother you? No, of course not. Cause yeah. I'm my, I'm myself. So I know, I know my, <laughs> I know, I know what I've been doing for you know, my whole, whole of my writing life. And, and, um, and I also don't write like, um, like it was great that the Argonauts found so many readers, but like this kind of fantasy of like, Oh, a crossover book or some book that will finally be accessible has never been interesting to me. So it just isn't like where I set up shop as a writer, you know. Anyway, you were going to ask me a question gonna, about the yes, art song, which is titled a song. Yes, they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a great question and actually touched on a lot of other questions <laughs> that I wanted to ask you. So you did very well there. But um, but I... I love so I, your intimation that I'm humorless. You were like, maybe no one thinks you can make a joke because of all your other work. But I'm going to let that totally slide and take it in stride. <laughs> I wouldn't say that was exactly what I... I I was more thinking about like female writers and how they're not and and how they're not really allowed to be funny unless they say they're being funny. You know, it's like it's like they if they're writing critically, they had they it's assumed that they're serious at all times. Yeah, you know, we had the same with Chris Krause yeah. when we interviewed her a long time ago, and obviously she's a riot. She's really funny, and people take her I work know. so seriously, and then are surprised when she's light and fun and agile. You know. People take everything. <laughs> I mean, I I would definitely say that I take things too seriously sometimes. That's one of my personal <laughs> flaws. If we're, if, if we're, um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so the the art essay, um, and actually maybe this is is sort of, I guess maybe reading it, it was the one that I thought might be most controversial. And I don't know if this has been your experience of it. And when I talk about taking things too seriously, I was also thinking about, it maybe seemed, and again, please feel free to contradict me here, that it's it's marking a sort of generational divide, um, which is not to say that everyone from, you know, my generation or or below believes something that your generation doesn't believe. But I think there is a younger generation that sees like, a certain kind of censoriousness and like ethical 
morality, striving towards ethical morality, and cancellation if, like, it veers from that perception to be a, a necessary form of freedom when it when it comes to things like like art or maybe sex. And then maybe this book is a little bit skeptical of that and sees it as possibly overly puritanical. And I and I think some I've seen some of the response to this book maybe playing that out a bit. And I wonder if that rings true to you and if you think there is a kind of divide, especially in terms of how people think about art and how it is made and how it is presented. Yeah. I mean, I think the read that you just offered is a very, I mean, I don't mean this in a, it sounds more pointed than I mean, but like is a, is a common one, you know, I think just yesterday I read this Michelle, Michelle Goldberg op-ed about exactly what you're talking about, about generational divide around like uh, cancel culture or something. And then I was surprised when I saw that she quoted my book, but it was like, she quoted a part of the sex chapter that unfortunately I thought was like, kind of when I was laying this out and then trying to move to like a different place. I am a professor, so I teach people, you know, aged 18 to 25 on the regular and have for 20 years, you know. Um, So I don't feel like I kind of stand far afield being like kids today. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm deeply involved in talking to people and talking to younger people all the time, you know, about these issues. Um, I think that, you know, it's, I think it's a very easy, I mean, I think it's true what you say generationally. And I do think that like, and this is what Michelle Goldberg was saying in her op-ed today that like, yeah, it's hard for people who grew up with like a certain investment in transgression and a right wing that was involved in wanting to like put artists in jail for writing about queer, you know, like making queer art or whatever. Yeah, it's hard and different to make a change to what you're describing in uh, this different kind of, uh, kind of, I mean, I wouldn't call it puritanical. I would just say it's like, as, as you say, like very keyed in on ethics and I think that a lot of that is really salutary. Um, so I don't feel very binary about it. I do feel like, I think that this sentiment, and I could be wrong, but I, I'm hopeful that this sentiment will outlast this moment because I don't think, I just think this moment, I mean, this moment's actually not that different than when I was in college in a certain way because like uh, I went to a school that was kind of spoofed in a movie called PCU and stuff. And like, it's like, it's not all, I'm not like unfamiliar with this, but I think what I want to live on past this moment is, you know, this idea that um, I kind of, uh, I'm trying to find the quote. I talk about a Judith Butler quote where she talks about the, the, she talks about, you know, a kind of warning about rhetoric that purports to have all ethical goodness on its side and acts to expel the flawed or destructive dimension of the human psyche to actors on the outside, those living in the region of the not me with whom we then disidentify. I, I do think that that's a real danger. And I think it's a dangerous psychological and then when expressed in like political policy, a very, you know, and other things, it can be very destructive. And so I think that the call about how to continue thinking about ethics without engaging um, very kind of freely with that kind of thinking. I, I, I do hope it stands past this moment, but I don't, I don't deny that that could be kind of uh, easily reduced to some kind of generational conflict. I've spent a lot of my life around artists and makers and writers and 
teaching people who want to be artists and writers, you know, and I think that letting go of that sense that you have all ethical goodness on your side is also an important thing to do to be able to make art, you know, (laughs) because it, it can be a form of trying to hide. And I think that my experience in teaching people has been that people often can kind of, you know, even though people say, oh my God, these older, you know, this older generation, they just don't get it. You know, I feel a lot of upset from people who feel despairing, paranoid, um, like, and it's not to say like, oh, get over it, you know, just like, but, but I do think that the question of like how to be in community and even in coalition, you know, like in a political sense with people who aren't um, speaking in the precise same ethical language that you are or reading every situation precisely the same way, you know, is, is something that we need to learn how to do. Um, because, you know, academics and stuff can be really good at saying like, like I was just listening this morning to like on the radio to a guy who was uh, working on conservation and land in the, you know, Eastern United States. And he was saying, you know, he, he thought we, we didn't need more national parks. We needed to work with the private landowners in terms of, um, how they manage their land. And I was just thinking as I listened to it, I just thought, oh, anybody I know would probably, and especially in academia, would hear the words private landowners and just go to town on this, you know? But meanwhile, the land needs help. <laughs> you know, like the land needs to be managed. And it's not to say that he's got all the right ideas, but the, but the kind of presumption that because we have the right analysis that we, even standing up very far apart from certain certain situations that we know nothing about, um, that we could go into them and demand that everyone kind of assent to it the way we see it. I don't I don't see it as very productive, you know. Yeah, and it feels like a position that we come to just out of fear. I mean, certainty is such a great tonic for fear, isn't it? It's very seductive. Well, there's one quote that Carrie and I pulled out actually that. Um, I think speaks to that, which is from the second song about sex, where you say that we need to reckon with the fact that everything is not going to be okay, that no one or nothing is coming to save us, and that this is yes. both seriously difficult and also fine. Um, <laughs> and I, lo- yeah, I love that. I actually find that a very comforting message. It's more comforting to me than the idea that I'm waiting for some overall, you know, overarching intelligence yeah. to rescue me or whatever. Well, I think you know maybe that's also like you know. I mean, some of the generational stuff I think is, you know, like trait and hackneyed and like, and just again, like kind of well, well trod territory that just like makes me want to fall asleep when anyone starts talking about it. You know? <laughs> but then on the other hand, you know, as somebody, <clears throat> you know, raising kids and working with, like I say, you know, a college age population, you know, I also feel like, you know, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of energy in the feeling, um, uh, like in the quote you just described, kind of raging against that too, you know, and to be like, well, someone should have fucking saved us because this is bogus, you know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, I totally get you, you know what I mean? And like, it doesn't make sense. Like I wouldn't with my kids be like, well, that's the breaks, man, you know, it's just fine. You know, it's like, but I think what I'm trying to model there, and maybe this again, like is a generational thing. And like, maybe it's from the experience of mothering or something is that like, um, I mean, this is getting like too personal, but, but like I had a, you know, I feel like my mom, like a lot of moms, you know, and and I get this now, but, you know, was so crushed whenever something seemed to be making me suffer that suddenly it always seemed to be about, like, it always seemed to turn over into, like, the saga, like, her pain that she couldn't make me not suffer or something, you know? And then I felt like we were just kind of in that, you know? 
And I just am really trying. I don't know if I'm doing it right or not. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I am. But, like, I'm really trying to just experiment with, like, what if I just tried to learn how to provide a lot of comfort without the kind of self-flagellation that ensues from knowing I can't you know, make the suffering going, go away, you know, like what, what would happen if that were just like, what, what other skills would I learn? It's definitely a work in progress, but I think it's a interesting lesson to think about in, in many spheres besides just like a domestic scene, you know? Yeah. Well, it seems like just the power of witnessing can be, exactly, it right? can be enough. Yeah. That's what I feel like the lesson I've learned in the last few years of my life when you can't fix, but you can you can bear witness. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And fe- and sitting with pain and like feeling it is inevitable. Um, yeah, it's, and it's not, it's not to be feared, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, really hard, but I, um, you know, I've talked about her so much. I'm not going to talk about her anymore for like, I'll take like a break. But, you know, since my, I had this friend, Christina Crosby, who's so amazing and she died while I was, well, in January, I guess. And, um, but if you've read Bluets, you know, she's my injured friend in that book. And no, no, she just like was such an extraordinary person. And after she became a quadriparalytic and she wrote this great book called A Body Undone, Living On After Great Pain. And because she was just such an extraordinarily like enlightened human being, um, it just very naturally enlightened. I don't know how to describe it. She just, um, but like spending so much time with her as I did in that kind of friendship and also at one point caretaking relation after her accident. I don't know. She just taught me an enormous amount about, about care and suffering and what it would mean, as you say, just to like be there for it because nobody was bringing back, you know, her spinal cord. <laughs> um, it was severed and that was that, you know, and um, and there's enormous waves of, you know, rage and frustration of trying to help her to learn how to use a spoon or whatever we were doing, you know, and it's just about being there, you know, and she, and she got that too, you know, and she actually was for the, because she got it so much and it's what she knew, what she wanted. She was actually really easy to help, which is really like, also, I'm sure if you guys have been going through this with your older elderly parents, like, I also want to become like easy to help, you know what I mean? Because that, that raging against, you know, a lot of things can, um, also be a means of like repelling, um, care, uh, even, even from people who want to be trying to give it. And, and, and that makes it so arduous, you know, and she was just not, she just, she just was not like that. And it was astonishing, you know? Yeah. She sounds extraordinary. She was. Maggie Nelson, it has been a pleasure to be with your mind for um, this this past few minutes. So thank you very much for, My pleasure. for coming on Literary Friction. My pleasure. It's been a, a total pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This episode is sponsored by Picador. This month, we wanted to celebrate the work of one of Britain's most exciting and inventive poets, a poet whose work has been described as at the forefront of a new canon. Raymond Antrobus's debut collection, The Perseverance, won the Rathbone Folio Prize and the Ted Hughes Award, amongst many other accolades. And in September, Picador published Antrobus's brand new collection, All the Names Given. 
The poems in All the Names Given explore conflicting racial and cultural identities, ancestry, youth, adolescence, and marriage, and travel between England, South Africa, Jamaica, and the American South. The work is punctuated with caption poems partially inspired by deaf sound artist Christine Sun Kim, and it has been hailed as a collection that transcends speech, sound, silence, and words. All the Names Given by Raymond Antrobus breaks new ground both in form and content. The result is a timely and humane book from one of the most important young poets of his generation. It is available to buy now at your local independent bookshop. I've seen Raymond read from it and I really highly endorse it also. So Octavia and I are back here to talk about constraint in literature. We had a really fascinating discussion with Maggie Nelson about how constraint relates to freedom and and how she conceptualizes it and how constraint doesn't have to be a dirge, which I liked. I liked that conception. So let's expand that a little bit and think about constraint in literature. And maybe the first question to ask is, Do you think a certain amount of constraint, whether it be kind of formal constraint or the means of conception being a constraint, can produce better art? I mean, I would say that no art can exist without constraint because unfettered creativity can't really go anywhere. It can be exciting inside your own brain, but you have to then funnel it through a constraint of some kind in order to make it translatable to other people, whether that constraint is the form. So whether you are making a painting or writing a play or a poem or a novel, or whether that constraint is the constraint on your time. Like if you're, if you've got childcare or you're caring for elderly parents, or you have a job that you have to go to nine to five or whatever. I think that the myth of being a creativity with zero constraints on it is actually an unhelpful one. And it's one I certainly used to believe in when I was younger. And now that I'm older and I have to fit my artistic practice around a very real life that involves responsibilities and things I have to do, I have a much greater respect for the relationship between creativity and constraints. And I see it in in a lot of the artists and writers whose work I'm the most engaged with at the moment. I feel like because I'm quite, kind of tuned into it, maybe I'm seeing them talking about it all the time. What do you think? Yeah, well, speaking from my own experience, having parameters has always been so helpful for me for being creative. I find like an empty canvas and a blank page and endless possibilities constraining in itself. So having those parameters, having a form in which to fill something is really helpful. And I'm, I'm sure that I, I was thinking about one of the classic examples of this is, is poetry that has a certain form it needs to take, whether it's a, a sonnet of 14 lines or a haiku. And artists who, within those very strict rules, actually managed to create something very beautiful and different and um, find meaning within form. I was also thinking about Lee Krasner, and I, I know she's a she's not a writer, she's a painter. Um, I went to an amazing exhibition of her work at the Barbican, and she has this Umber series, which was made when she was suffering from insomnia. And she often was working at night for that reason under artificial light. And so the same, she couldn't use the same colors. And so she shifted her, her palette to much kind of darker monotone 
colors. And it's an amazing series that was kind of produced by necessity, but was almost all the more meaningful for it. And I think that's a great metaphor for for maybe the ways that constraint can be the spark for creativity. At the same time, it's interesting. I I do think you're right that there's there's totally a myth about unrestrained freedom to create and how that's somehow better. But I also think there there's some myth making that goes on in the opposite direction in which like especially things like finances, the the myth that somebody who's starving might be a better artist. I think sometimes we we love to think of artists as people who have to struggle and that being a constraint that's necessary to to creativity, but I also think that can be pernicious in its own way. Oh, definitely. And you can produce really phenomenal art from a place of supported comfort as well. But I think, you know, that myth is a myth that exists by necessity because so many artists are having to make art under extremely less than ideal conditions or or conditions of insecurity, financial or emotional or whatever. I don't think you can pick them apart really, but I do think that it's important to question it because I also think that a lot of artists reach a level of maturity where they break through that and they realize that actually they can make art from a place of comfort or comfort's maybe the wrong word. Security, I think is the word I would use. But I also think the the really interesting thing, like what you were describing about Lee Krasner, when the constraint itself then shapes how you express the idea. And I was thinking of the Ulipo group, who were this group of mostly French-speaking writers and mathematicians who came together and they used extremely constrained writing techniques in order to make poetry largely, but also some prose work. But they used the constraint as the trigger for the ideas and as the trigger for inspiration. And often these techniques were based on mathematical problems, which I just love. I love when the kind of left brain, right brain ideas sort of come together like that. So they would use chess moves maybe, or they would have forms like the snowball, where, um, which is a poem where each line is a single word, but each successive word is one letter longer. Or you could do it with a single word and then two words and three words and four words. So you are so tightly held by the constraint. And then what your mind is able to do with that creates this whole new form of expression. Or they came up with the lipogram, which is where you write excluding one or more letters. So you might write an entire essay without the letter U in it. And then the agility that that forces in your mind is very exciting, I think. And there were lots of members, the most famous are Georges Perec, Italo Calvino, Marcel Duchamp, of course, he's got his name all over it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that, I think that kind of thing is very interesting as well. And if you need, you know, if you are having that total panic of looking at a blank page or a blank canvas, those kind of artificial parameters can be so important just to get you over the fear of beginning and then you can run and you can go. Yeah, totally. So I guess maybe the the question to expand that out is thinking about books written under conditions of constraint that weren't necessarily self-inscribed. So things like, you know, dictatorships or censorship, like what did those conditions produce? Right. Well, the Marquis de Sade very famously wrote 120 Days of Sodom when he was imprisoned. And um, I think he had to write lots of it on essentially like toilet paper. And what you what does it do to the way you are making work if you are in those desperate circumstances? What do you think is going to happen to the work afterwards? Like, what is your relationship to it if you think maybe it's going to be your last 
the last imprint of your consciousness before you are locked up forever or maybe executed or something. And then, of course, there's works of, of literature written under dictatorships, which is a whole kind of genre, isn't it? Yeah, it very much is. You know, your favorite book comes to mind, The Master and the Margarita, um, which maybe I, I wouldn't call that a dictatorship, but it's a very it's a book that couldn't be published <laughs> in the Soviet Union while it was written because it was so critical of a regime that was very dedicated to to censoring critical work. There's a whole genre, which some critics have called the dictator novel in Latin American literature, that examines and challenges the role of the dictator. So literature in response to these kinds of regimes, like The Feast of the Goat by Mario Vargas Llosa about Trujillo in the Dominican Republic, or Marquez's The Autumn of the Patriarch, or even Amulet by Bologna, yeah. is thinking about these things. Totally. The dictator novel as a category sounds so dismissive though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. You like pour your your soul into this story about so many things and it becomes a dictator novel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the other thing I was thinking about is what about books that are about prison? So they they kind of use the constraint of their characters as a device for telling mm. a story or as the lens that they want to turn on because they want to engage in very stringent, often cultural criticism. Like I was thinking of The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner, which is of course set in a prison and is an American novel that is all about criticizing what America has become when it comes down to the prison industrial complex. I, I think books about slavery are, are doing a similar thing. Absolutely. Those are necessarily books about constraint and what that kind of constraint does to the human psyche and the human body much of the time. So The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, Beloved by Toni Morrison. I was also thinking about Washington Black um, by Essie Adugin, who we interviewed on this show. And I think that's such a good book about the psychological toll of slavery. Yeah. Um, much after the the character is quote unquote free, he's still so constrained by this experience. Yeah, that follows him around the globe, really, as he has these rip roaring adventures. Absolutely. And then, in total contrast to that, you have books like Atessa Moshfeg's My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is a character of extreme privilege electing to constrain herself to her apartment and take drugs in order to avoid reality. Um, so completely the opposite end of the spectrum. But again, it gives the writer a really, a really exciting set of parameters that they have to work within in order to tell the story. Yeah, totally. Constraint by choice, which is maybe what it was interesting to hear Maggie talk about the difference between restraint and constraint. And maybe constraint by choice is just restraint. <laughs> but it's still constraint. So yeah, I was thinking of even like Walden by Henry David Thoreau, which is of course it's not a novel; it's a it's a um, a nonfiction book. But it's it's very much about his choice to live in a very constrained manner, you know, away from society. Or even Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky about somebody who again has separated themselves from the world. And I like what you said about prison. It, it's like. It's a novel about constraint, but it's also the constraint of the parameters of the setting. Within a prison, the book is literally confined, has to be confined to the prison. And that's true of something like My Year of Rest and Relaxation. You know, you're confined with the author to that apartment, which gets back to the point we were making at the beginning that I could see that being a very fruitful way for an author to start a book where their characters are literally stuck somewhere, which is not to make light of something like prison or being stuck in an apartment, but 
it's useful to have boundaries in all artistic creation, I think. Right. So what is your favorite book about constraint? That's the wrong way to say it, isn't it? What what book would you like to talk about in relation to constraint? Well, I was, I, there were a few that I wanted to talk about that I have mentioned on the show before. So I thought I'd go for something that I haven't talked about, which is a novel called The Mad Woman's Ball by Victoria Mass, Le Bal des Folles, translated by Frank Wynne, which is historical fiction set at the Salpetriere Hospital and Asylum in Paris in 1885, which listeners who know, I wrote my PhD about hysteria partly, so this is like catnip for me. This was the time when neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot was treating and experimenting on so-called hysterical patients, largely women. And it tells the story of a group of very, very different women who all live within the walls of this hospital and what happens on the night of the Mad Woman's Ball, which was a real historical event where the hospital hosted a big party and all of its patients put on fancy frocks and they got to dance with whoever wanted to come and gawp at them, which is just mind-boggling when you stop to think about it. But the the book is about the constraints obviously imposed by the hospital and the asylum, but then also really looking at the societal constraints on women at the time and everything they weren't allowed to do and all the things they got punished for if they did do. So it's a, it's a good, good one for the theme. What about you? Well, I'm sure I've talked about this book before, but I would like to talk about it in the context of constraint, which is Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which is is a great novel for this theme because I think it's really about the constraints of American society on an African-American man to the point where he chooses to drop out completely. So goes into a kind of self-exile, but tells the story of why he has done this and the kind of ways in which America <laughs> does not want him to be free, uh, really. I think. I mean, it's just a masterpiece of American literature. I would really recommend it. And it's a book I return to over and over. It's one that I'm still yet to read, but I, every time you talk about it, I want to read it desperately. I read it in college and some scenes in it still, I still, they like pop up in my mind once in a while, which is always, I think, the sign of something that's incredibly effective and memorable. Yeah, for sure. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Maggie Nelson to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I'd love to. So this one is a book that I'm actually quite surprised that I read, but I'm really pleased (laughs) that I did. It was just not the kind of thing I would normally pick up, but it's called Empire of Pain. And it's by a writer called Patrick Radenkeefe, who's American. And he's a, a, a reporter and a journalist, and he does a podcast and everything. But this is a, a basically a history and an analysis of the 
inordinately wealthy and influential Sackler family, whose name mm. I have seen all over art institutions in the UK since I was a kid. Um, so it's one of those names that's super familiar to me. And I had this sense that, you know, I knew they were connected to the opioid crisis in the States somehow. I didn't really know about all the details. And I, I picked up this book kind of on a whim and was immediately gripped because he writes this kind of narrative reporting so expertly that you're just completely thrown into it. And it's an amazingly well-researched and very compellingly structured story following three generations of this family and tracing their roles in the production and development of various medications, starting with Valium and then ending up with OxyContin. And it's honestly, like, I don't know if you watch Succession, you guys, but it's like watching Succession. Like the story that unfolds across these generations is one of, you know, true kind of greed and power hunger and the exploitation of people in need and very blatant, dark attempts to play the system and get one over other people and people who are very smart. You know, that's the other thing, the kind of dark cleverness of these people. I, I also was very kind of aware that the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial is happening mm -hmm. at the moment and it feels like there's a connection there you know and like obviously in the pandemic where questions of um treatment and cure and who has access to them and who's abusing their power you know as we pay money for our lateral flow tests and all of this it just it was very live in my mind but really it's like, I would say it's just a great portrait of the fact that there is no such thing as ethical philanthropy and the mm, fact that there mm -hmm. is no such thing as ethical big pharma and there is no such thing as ethical advertising so you just you come out of it with like a renewed disdain I think for so many of the systems that we have to live alongside and then also the characters in it I mean they're real people and they really read like a, a kind of cartoon of what happens when people get corrupted by power there's one guy who's like the son I think is the grandson maybe of the original Sackler, who's quite feckless and super wealthy. And he comes into the building and he lets his dog shit on the carpet and he let, doesn't clean it up. And, you know, like all this kind of parody of what wealth can do to people when it's on that sort of a level. And just, you know, again, as I finished it, I just had that Jenny Holzer quote, abuse of power comes as no surprise, literally ringing in my ears. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great read. And he reads the audio book as well. And I was switching between audio and um, reading and he reads it brilliantly. So if you, if you need something to listen to while you're kind of stomping around, I'd recommend it very highly. That sounds great. Um, he is from Massachusetts and everyone in Massachusetts where I am from is very proud that he's from Massachusetts. <laughs> and he's like cousins with like somebody that I know. And yeah. Maggie, what's your recommendation? Well, I'm teaching a class right now in nonfiction writing and we're doing a unit on portraiture and there's a lot of great portraits I love to teach. But the one that I'm teaching this week is by Jamaica Kincaid called My Brother. I don't know if you guys have read this book, but it's about her, her brother Devin who died of AIDS in 1996 when he was 33. And it's an amazing book because it's beautifully written, but it's also part of why I like teaching it is because speaking of care, it's about her estrangement, you know, essentially from her family and from her place of origin and it's from, and from her brother. And it's really not about, you know, the narrator is not, you know, is exploring a lot of very ugly feelings, you know, in addition to feelings of care and other things, um, ugly feelings about the mother, ugly feelings about where she comes from, all, all kinds of things. 
I'm, I'm interested in AIDS literature, generally speaking, as you might gather from reading um, the sex chapter in my book, uh, and a lot of AIDS, you know, and, and, and I think this is a really interesting contribution to AIDS literature in terms of putting the locusts, you know, outside of the United States um, in, in a different community and a different treatment sagas going on there, different forms of ostracization of people who are sick with AIDS, the way that the different wards were. Anyway, I really recommend it. It's, it's also just a, if you're interested in nonfiction writing and you are concerned about the ethics of how to present yourself or people in your family, I think it's kind of a must read on that account. Sounds brilliant. Really interesting. I, I have read, I've had, I don't know if I've ever read a full book of Jamaica Kincaid, but I've read some of her short stories. Mm-hmm and really, really enjoyed them. I think I first came across them on the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, listening to somebody right. else read them and then discuss them. Yeah, really interesting writer. Yeah, it's a, it's a, really, it's a really interesting book. So. Great. I am going to recommend the novella Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. Oh, yeah. Which I just read while I was on holiday. And I've been meaning to read this for years. It's one of those books that just sat on my shelves, and I knew I would probably love it because I love his um, short story collection, Jesus' Son, but just never actually picked it up and so finally did. It is really short. It's 116 pages. And you love a short book right now, babe. I do. I do. <laughs> I'm ready for that too. Yeah, honestly, Train Dreams, very short. Um, But it has some other things to recommend it as well. It's the story of one man named Robert Grenier who works on the railroads. He's born in the late 1800s. He lives in Idaho and he dies in the 1960s. And I suppose you could say this is a kind of American everyman story. You know, it's this man who witnesses this intense time of change in the United States, but also in the world in terms of industrialization, in terms of how our communities are formed, how the world connects with each other. And I'm thinking about our conversation we just had about pain, because I think this book, this book is also about like, what is a life? Mm -hmm. You know, it never explicitly states that it's incredibly spare and incredibly, you know, the language is really beautiful, but it's not really philosophizing, but you can't help but come away from this story thinking what stories are worth telling, what about life is worth living, how do Mm -hmm. we grapple with pain, how do we remember a life that is lived, especially, you know, I don't think it's giving away too much to say that he, he dies kind of unremembered and, um, and what does it mean that he's been fictionally reconstructed in this story? I think it's impossible to read it and with those big questions in your mind. And also, finally, just questions about how we relate to the natural world and the ways in which we've destroyed the natural world and, and how that relationship will need to change through just seeing the life of this one man. So it really changed me, and I'm, I'm very glad that I read it. Great. I'm going to read both of those. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to know what you think. Um, Very short. (laughs) That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Maggie Nelson, to Daphne Carnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and you can get in touch with us by email litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. 
We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.